Venice is built on a foundation of problems. The fondamenta of the city of Venice were eaten away, so by the 1970s, Venice was sinking because of all of this rot. Coming up, we examine why Venice recently had its worst flooding in 50 years and how its residents suffered through it. The Bora winds and the Scirocco winds and the rain and the full moon, everything combined perfectly to allow this one week of, of pressure. We'll also hear what it's like to hike the length of the infamous Kokoda Trail across Papua New Guinea. It was the site of fierce battles during the Second World War. The jungle at times is oppressive, and all you can see is 37 shades of green. And hear how to celebrate carnival like they do in Basque Country. Many people, they go in to see carnival, but you have to leave it. Let's see the world together in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Exceptionally high tides in the Venice Lagoon caused near-record flooding in November of 2019. In just a bit, we'll check in with Italy cultural expert Fred Plotkin and with a resident who had to clean up after the Aqua Alta flooded the ground floor of her home. They'll share some interesting perspectives with us on why the high waters in Venice are getting more and more serious. And travel writer Rick Antonson tells us about one of the toughest hikes of his life when he crossed the historic Kokoda Trail at Papua New Guinea. Let's start with a look at the Mardi Gras and carnival celebrations going on in Basque Country. The costumes and street parties will vary from town to town. As one of the oldest cultures in Europe, the Basques include some interesting public festivities in the days leading up to the fasting period of Lent, traditions that sometimes go back further than anyone can remember. For a peek at how they do carnival in Basque Country, we're joined by Claire Loyag. She's from Hesperen in the French Basque Country and Augustine Sarisa lives in San Sebastian on the Spanish side of the border. Welcome, Claire and Augustine. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> so, first of all, you're both from Basque Country. Claire, who are the Basques? Just very briefly. Um, the Basque is one of the oldest um, civilization in Europe, and we are divided on those two parts, one in France and another part in Spain. And, Augustine, there's the language of Basque people. Yes, we speak a Basque language, which we call Euskera. Euskera. Yes. I want to talk about carnival. Carnival basically is the blowout before Lent that leads up to Holy Week and Easter. It goes way back to even pre-Christian times on trying to get through the winter, and there's a hope for resurrection, for new crops in the fields, for the end of the hunger time. In the darkest depths of winter, I think the meat was going to go bad and they had to eat it all or something, or carnival. Carne is the word meat, right? Yes, too. And that led up to 40 days of uh, denial, Lent, and then Easter. So we know Mardi Gras in, mm-hmm. in New Orleans. That's basically Fat Tuesday uh, in French, and uh, it's carnival time, right? Uh, yes. Tell me about carnival, because it's a big deal in Basque Country. Uh, Augustine, what is carnival in your perspective as a person in Basque Country? We have two ways of uh, celebrating carnival. The uh, more modern Christian celebrations that are more popular on the Spanish side and the more traditional pagan celebrations that you can find in the, in the Basque country of France. The difference is the recent history. I mean, these pagan celebrations were banned by the dictator Franco for 35 years. Uh, he banned the use of the language and all kind of uh, celebrations related to pagan ceremonies. And this was banned, so it was primarily lost during that time. So let me get this straight. You've got Basque culture, which is in a lot of ways the same in France and in Spain, 
But carnival is a mix of Christian and pagan traditions. And when you see these crazy creatures jumping up and down in Europe, in many cultures, it's pre-Christian, and it, it's a way to integrate the, the indigenous religion in ancient times with the Christian, the newer religion. And Franco was allied very carefully with the Catholic Church in Spain. He didn't want any pagan influence in the Spanish Basque country, so he said, this is a Christian festival, none of that pagan stuff. But in France, they were more free to have let loose with the pagan craziness. Correct, correct. Franco considered himself the highest representation of the Catholic Church and turned the country into a, a religious state. Hmm. Now, Claire, I would imagine in France, then, you have some pretty wild costumes when people dress up during Carnival. Yes. Especially where the pagans go crazy in the French <laughs> side of the border. What is the Carnival? Can you just, we're on radio, but paint a picture for us. So, what does it look like? For me, it's colorful with many natural things. So um, we will have flowers, leaves, we will have um, ribbons, we will have a chilinchak, which is uh, small bells everywhere. So you have to hear the Carnival and you have to see it. It's an explosion, okay, of joy. It's just a moment where you go out from the last year and everything that went wrong and you wish something really good for the next one. So you just have to explode yourself and just let it go. Go out with your animal part of you. Or let your animal free. Exactly. Your inside of you. We all have this side in us. So we have just, this is the perfect moment just to, and then you start again. So you dress up. There's music, there's staying yes. up all night. What is going on? And Tell actually, me more. in different places, you've got different carnivals. In the right. French part of the Basque country, we've got three provinces. For example, in La Pourdie, which is really famous, you've got Kashkarotak. So those people, they are going from house to house every weekend before carnival or even after. They go to each house. They get to know the neighborhood. So it's also a kind of ritual. And they'll go to every house. They sing. They play music. They dance. They share uh, several cups of wine. And then <laughs> it's a big party. At the end wow. of the day, you're a bit tired. But it's it's really nice. This is so interesting to me because I've been going to Basque Country for a long time. And I have to be honest. I feel there's more character and enthusiasm in Spain, yes. because the French Basques are more French to me. They're more <laughs> controlled by Paris. But here on Carnival, you let that Basque animal, that pagan yeah. <laughs> animal, out. Augustine, when you hear Claire talking about that, from the Spanish Basque side on Carnival, do you relate? Do you have an animal you're going to let loose also? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, no. We have uh, just a couple of uh, little towns in the north of Navarra, which are having this celebration in which uh, these Men are carrying big bells that are yeah. bouncing and making big noise. Big, like uh, cowbells or cow, something like Yes, this. huge cowbells. the Basque culture is a lot of this, uh, you know, animal caretaking in the mountains. Yes, the purpose of it is to awake the nature, awake the youth. Uh, springtime is coming. It's very much related to the end of uh, winter and mm-hmm. welcoming the new year and mm-hmm. also awakening the nature and the spring is coming, the blossom. Yeah, and, and all. So it's very much related to that. So that's something you can see in two different towns in the north of Pamplona, Navarre, and also a couple of towns in the area outside San Sebastian. When I think of eastern Spain, anyways, I think of processions, solemn processions, like in Sevilla and so on, uh, Semana Santa, Holy Week. Once. So Carnival feels a little more just a, a party. It is. And, it is. and Holy Week is more sacred. Yes, especially on the Spanish side. What yeah. you're going to see is big parades. Uh, like, like in the town of Tolosa, uh-huh. that's the most popular one. People go from all the areas to go and see these parades. 
Our guests from Basque Country are Agustin Sarisa from San Sebastian in Spain and Claire Loyer from Hasprin, a little town outside Bayonne in the southwest corner of France. They're sharing what makes the days leading up to Ash Wednesday special in Basque Country and what their traditions include on both sides of the border. So, Claire, I got this image of being in the middle of all this festivity and chaos and music and happy people. Help me just better understand it. First of all, people are dressed up like animals. What kind of animals would they be? So the main animal is a bear, okay? So the bear is opening the spring. So the bear will be around. He will scare the children. And then you've got many people with long hats, horns, flowers, uh, mirrors, and ribbons everywhere. So mirrors on their head. Yeah, and the head and the hat. Long hats. Yeah, long Point, hats. Pointed hats? Yeah, pointed hats are these, with these, ribbons. Are these, these, what color are the pointed hats? With many flowers. All so all flowers. the colors, yes. Okay. You need to represent nature. And then they so have... So you're a cornucopia of life, really. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And what and else? And they have also a skirt with um, a sheep wool. Um, the horns, and then also uh, natural shoes. Uh, whatever you find in nature, you do it, like trees or whatever you find. So these are a bunch of little fairy elves and so on coming yeah. out of the woods and stirring up all the energy of people. Exactly. What about the music? What kind of music will you Ooh, hear? We've got a lot of music, really punchy, and a lot of songs linked to uh, legendary people or the witches or whatever. And would this be kind of just noisy, ringing bells and hitting drums, or is it uh, actually melodic? We've got to. We've got the drums and the bells just to make a lot of noise, to wake up everybody. And then we've got our song. We sing a lot in the Basque Country, so we have a l songs with all the people getting together. It must be a time when the community feels like it's one big family. Oh, yes. And that's part of the beauty. Yeah, it's part of ritual to be together and... Have fun. <laughs> This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about carnival in French Basque Country and Spanish Basque Country. Our guides are Claire Loyag and Agustin Sarisa. Sounds like a fun time to come to Basque Country. What should I know about tourism, about travel? Claire, if I'm coming to Basque Country on the French side, where will I go? Is there a, there's a different uh, energy in the small towns and the big cities? Well, I, I love Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Can mm -hmm. I just stay there and have a good time? Or what do you recommend? So during carnival time, I will recommend Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Mm -hmm. Just in front of the bay, you've got Cibourg. Mm -hmm. And they have the Shorgingawa, which is the witch night. And you see those people with the bells. And it's really a popular thing. I will go to Cibourg. So which night is the witch night? The Friday night. The Friday night. Okay. And Augustine, if you're coming to Basque Country in Spain, how would you best enjoy it during carnival? I would suggest to stay in a big city and then move for the day or maybe two days to this town of Tolosa. 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 T-O-L-O-S-A. Tolosa. Like Toulouse in France, yeah. the Spanish Toulouse would be Tolosa. And actually, we call carnival Iñautidiac or Asterteac. Asterteac means Tuesday. Tuesday. Yes, the celebrations related to Tuesday, Mardi Gras. Oh, just Tuesday. Yes. Fat or skinny. <laughs> we, we have fought Thursday and thin Friday. <laughs> okay, good. But you're going to have a great time on that weekend. And just to cap this beautiful discussion, I'd love both of you to share with me your favorite sort of childhood memory of Carnival in your corner of Basque country. Claire, if you think back, just what's one memory that you just go, wow, that was a crazy time? To be in the middle of carnival. Because for me, many people, they go in to see carnival, but you have to leave it. So you are in the middle, you're a bit lost to get lost. And to see all those people 
looking with colors and animals and to be with them and to just distribute you food and like... And you mean in the middle of it, literally, like there's crazy decorated people all around yeah, you and figuratively everybody. where you're letting yourself free to be exactly. overcome by it. Yes. So it's the good... And then you found again your parents and you're like, oh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Augustine, what's your Well, in my memory? case, um, being born and raised in a city like San Sebastian and having uh, carnival celebrations as you'll find anywhere else, going to small towns in the Basque country of France, uh, that was an experience, seeing okay. all these uh, people dressed up in the traditional outfits and also representing these wild animals. That was something when I was a child to see these people carrying the big cowbells and making that huge noise and when you're a kid. That's a kind of a frightening. <laughs> and, and that is still, even today, we can experience that. So you're going to go to San Sebastian. If you happen to be there during Carnival, you can head on up to Tulosa. Yeah, on the Spanish side. But if it happens that you are there before that, the celebrations start in mid-late January till the week of Carnival in the Basque country of France. So you just need to go and check. Uh, oh, so you just head up to France for the party. Yeah, every weekend they're going to have these um, celebrations yeah. that Claire explained. A very good lesson. Augustine Sarisa, Claire Loyag, thank you very much, and uh, happy carnival. <laughs> thank yes, you thank very you. much. Let happy that animal carnival. out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. We'll head to the other side of the world to Papua New Guinea in a little bit. But next, let's look at why the flooding episodes are getting more frequent and more serious in Venice. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The Aqua Alta, that means the high tides of Venice, soaked the city in November 2019. It was the deepest flooding in 50 years. The author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler has examined these issues that Venice has faced for years. That's Fred Plotkin. And Stacey Caponi is a resident of Venice. She's an artist. And she was there, and her home was flooded, and she was living the experience. And she joins us also as we learn more about the challenge of Venice, the high water, the aqua alto. So, Fred, thanks for being here. And, and Stacy, thanks for being here also. Thank you. Buona sera. Thanks for having me. Now, Fred, you wrote your thesis at the university was on the what was called the Death of Venice. Tell us why we have the Aqua Alta and, and what's the backstory of this uh, flooding of Venice. Well, historically, there were always tides at full moon and so on, and the city throughout its history had periodic flooding, but nothing like what we've seen in recent times. The problem really became aggravated the way so many things did with the rise of fascism in the 1920s. Mussolini decided that he would widen the three natural inlets of the lagoon, understand that the lagoon separates Venice in the north from the Adriatic Sea in the south. The three inlets are called Lido, Malamocco, and Chioggia. And by widening them, it allowed more water to come into the lagoon, more salt water. He did that because he put, stupidly, oil refineries in the mainland town of Marghera. So the oil tankers would go out of the lagoon into the Adriatic. And ever since, we've had this problem. Add to that that the pollution that was a result of the oil refineries plus agricultural runoff meant that the foundations, the fundamente of the city of Venice, were eaten away. So by the 1970s, Venice was sinking 
because of all of this rot. Long story short, the city was actually supported and made stronger. It sinks ever so slightly now. We have a new problem. Climate change has led to melting to higher waters, bigger storms, so that most of the recent disastrous floods in Venice have been in the first decade and the second decade of the 21st century, including three horrible days in November 2019. Wow. The high water really is a... um it's a perfect storm of, of different variables. You've got a wind, you've got a high tide with a full moon, you've got changes caused by the development of the region, and uh, we've got Venice's inability to, to do anything about it. It's, it's sort of a helpless situation, isn't it? Stacy. No, I was just going to say your description is a perfect storm is what we had this last November 2019. And and it was more like seven days of the waters because with the four tides that you have in and out, you know, every so many hours, places like my home were filling up with water. You have to wait for the tide to recede before you can open your water door to allow it to escape, which just comes back in when people go traipsing by your house or pumps go on. But the Bora winds and the Scirocco winds and the rain and the full moon, everything combined perfectly to allow this one week of pressure. But it's part of daily life to live with the tidal situation in a place like this. We're used to it, but not to have it remain so long. Describe what it's like, Stacy. because as a tourist, I've been there, and, you know, it's kind of, you take photographs of it, and they've got the elevated walkways, and some people pull on their hip boots, and it's, it's something to, it's kind of exciting. But you're living there, and you've got the reality of, of mold and bacteria and humidity exactly. and problems with your electricity. Yeah. What's it like to live in Venice after a, a big flood? I think that, I mean, obviously I'm not Venetian, as we well know. I've adopted the city as, as my home. I've chosen to live in this beautiful, delicate place that to me uh, holds so much magic. So the high waters are part of my conscious decision to live here. I don't want to complain about them to you because it's a part of the choice that has been made. And the Venetians have that same sort of confident energy. You're just used to cleaning up after the high waters. Living here, the thing that was most frustrating was to be watching the news and to see all the nation's politicians and their posses having a fashion show in San Marco with their hip waders on, as opposed to, you know, sending out more crews to help local people and business owners clean up the mess. So that was actually a case where you've got your city leaders and your politicians sort of just frolicking in the uh, spectacle of the flood. Well, residents, I mean, there's, what, just 60,000 people still living in Venice. You guys are there wondering, how are are we going to deal with this? Stacey, you mentioned uh, how maddening it is that tourists just wander into your house and take photos of you while you're dealing with this real serious problem. That definitely makes me lose my patience. So when you're mucking out the water that's, you know, come up to the third step of your entrance and you know it's part of my art studio is downstairs so it's just frustrating not anything is on the floor but with it being almost at the two meter mark it definitely came in and did damage my biggest problem is the the drywall that i have down there that all has to be taken out and the electricity doesn't work anymore so while you're busy mucking out on day four and somebody just sort of comes in right behind you at your open door and is taking a photograph of your home. That's just shocking. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stacy Gaboni, who's an artist in Venice, living through the floods. And we're talking with Fred Plotkin, who's a, a scholar and a, and a lover of all things Italian. And he's, Fred has written a book called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And Fred, I know when you were a student, that was your theme, was uh, studying the, the whole phenomenon of the flood. When we think of the flood and what we were talking about, this perfect storm of things that contribute to this problem, you've got this issue of cruise ships, dredging, bigger canals. You've got the causeway that was built in the, in the middle of the 1800s that stopped the circulation. I know when they made the causeway out to Mont Saint-Michel in France, that caused things to silt up and they took that causeway away so there'd be a better flow. What are some of these factors? And then what is the hope of the Moses Project uh, mm-hmm. that's been so much promise and so much investment, but so much corruption and so much disappointment? All kinds of issues here, and I can put them concisely. The Austrians occupied Venice for much of the 19th century. They built the railway bridge in 1846. It connected the mainland to the Centro Storico, the old city of Venice. That, for many people, was the beginning of the end. They destroyed a neighborhood to build the Santa Lucia train station, and in effect, it made Venice dependent on the mainland. Also, that bridge did stop the waters in certain ways, and it is a source of real resentment. Verdi wrote a whole opera about it, Attila, about Attila the Hun, the Austrians being Attila, coming in, sacking Venice, and the Venetian Roman general says, Avrai tu l'universo resti l'Italia, may you can have the universe, let Italy be mine. So that was the beginning And then Mussolini adding all of the industry and widening the three inlets. Then pollution after World War II with industrial buildup. Then corruption in Italian business and government. November 4th, 1966 was the highest flood in the history, recorded history of Venice. It was 76 inches. To give you context, November 12th, 2019 was 74 inches. In other words the second highest recorded mm. in history, and there were two more in the days that followed. This almost is six as high. feet above the regular sea level. Yes, yes. So to tell you about the mosaic, in Italian, M-O-S-E, it means Moses. We think of Moses holding back the sea, mm-hmm. but it stands for modulo M-O, sperimentale, the S, elettromeccanico. In other words, these are mechanical gates that are supposed to open and shut that were to be installed in the Lido, Malamoco, and Chioggia inlets. They did not start on that until 2003, and they are almost done, but they're not really working. There was, I can't go into all the government corruption and so on and and payments and bribes, but the problem is basically that For 15 years now, this flooding has continued. The salt pollution has continued. It's not that Venice is sinking so much. It's that the waters are rising. Mm. Have cruise ships come in, displacing when you have a 6,000-passenger ship, it seems. It's actually 3,000. Displacing huge amounts of water onto the Piazza San Marco just by a ship. It has nothing to do with the high tides then what you're doing is allowing Venice to be destroyed. That's why people are angry, but the commercial interests want what's called the mordi e fuggi, in other words, eat-and-run tourism of people who land at the ship terminal, 
do a little shopping, leave money, and then leave Venice. So that affects hotel keepers. It's in the long term terrible for the economy of Venice, and a few people are making a lot of money in the short term, but they're destroying the city. What is the feeling among Venetians, Stacy, about trying to get money in certain areas like cruise ships and so on is really threatening the very existence of life for people who live there? Well, I mean, I guess I can only speak for the people that I, I know, right? So I tend to know the people who are anti-cruise ships, mm-hmm. not an anti I don't think you should travel by cruise ship person in general. I just think that the laws uh, affecting the cruise ship industry around the world need to be looked at. For It's not just Venice that is suffering mm-hmm. under the stress of this type of tourism, as we all know. The Venetians in general are rather divided. It depends on where their family's income comes from. Venice gets the extreme case. People just stampede in. They they don't eat in a restaurant for dinner. They don't sleep in a hotel. They just stampede in, congest everything, uh, eat some fast food, take some photographs, uh, and then go back to their 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 ship. (laughs) (laughs) So I can see some people thinking, this is not my idea of a nice part of our industry. We're looking beneath the surface of Venice to examine why the city's flooding more often end with greater impact. We're joined by Italophile Fred Plotkin. He writes the regional food guide, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, and a book called Opera 101. And Stacy Caboni is a painter, photographer, and tour guide who had to rescue her art from the floodwaters seeping into her Venice studio. She posts samples of her work at stacygaboni.com. Anna's listening in from Rochester, New York, and she joins us on the phone at 877-333-RIC. Anna, what are your thoughts about Venice? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm curious what you know, I can do to be a more responsible tourist. Never been to Italy. Very looking forward to going for a long-awaited honeymoon with my husband, and um, we want to visit Venice, but we, we're not sure how we can do this responsibly um, and still enjoy everything the city has to offer. This is such a timely question, and uh, it's an in- interesting issue for several cities in Europe that are over-touristed in Venice, along with Amsterdam and Barcelona and a couple of others, are getting to the point where you wonder... Is a tourist even welcome? Of course, good tourism is welcome, but there's there's tourism that just takes and doesn't give. Fred, what's your thoughts on how somebody can visit Venice in a way that's uh, positive? Anna, the first thing is to stay away from the Piazza San Marco in the most touristed areas. Stay in a locanda, which is an inn in one of the outlying areas. There, It's called the Sestieri. There are six districts in the old city of Venice. Stay in Castello stay in Canareggio, stay in ones that are less frequented by tourists. Try to find a neighborhood where you develop your local bar. You form a community for a few days. Frequent local Venetian food places. Don't go where uh, you see all the crowds of people lining up for pizza. Pizza is not Venetian. Mm -hmm. Go to museums that are less well-known in addition to the Academia, But above all, for me, Venice, among its many virtues, is acoustically, it's like nothing else in the world. And if you walk down certain alleyways and you hear people doing their dishes or they're on the phone, you suddenly realize that you are away from your world of vehicular traffic, of all kinds of noise that really clutters our minds and makes it hard to think. In Venice, you reflect not just on the water, not just on the sky, 
but you hear things you don't hear elsewhere. So bring not only your eyes to Venice, but your ears and wander without direction, without a plan, and you'll have the best discoveries of all. That's a beautiful answer, Fred. And uh, I know that we've talked before, and and you are considered a pleasure activist, and that's a very good way to up the pleasure, is to appreciate the acoustics. Stacy, what are your thoughts on how a tourist can... I I love Fred's suggestion, and and Rick, you and I have talked about this before. Come to Venice and get lost, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I encourage you to... Stay definitely in a hotel in the city run by a family. Wouldn't that be nice? Please avoid illegal Airbnb. That's a topic for another day. Please eat at local restaurants. Please don't day trip and come in from the mainland. Please take a gondola ride and do exactly like Fred has suggested. Be quiet in your gondola. Listen to the water. Be in the place. Forget about your selfie stick. Try to make those memories, your photographs of your mind, because this place needs to be felt, uh, not just seen quickly. So if you can stay for a week, then you can do exactly what Fred has suggested and find yourself the local cafe to have your coffee and, and meet the local people and learn a little Venetian dialect while you're at it. May I make one more suggestion? Yeah. Please make Venice your first stop. Fly there. There's the airport there. Go into the city by uh, ferry, and it will ar- arise in your vision and so on. This way, your first impact with Italy will be Venice. Then you could leave by the railway station and go to the mainland. Hmm. But it's the best first place to have contact with everything Italian. As Fred said, it's a beautiful way to be introduced to one of the most magnificent cities anywhere in your travels. Thanks for your call, Anna. Thank you very much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. He's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And Stacy Gaboni, who's a, a local tour guide, who's an American who's decided to embrace Venice and actually become a local. Stacy, if you had a visitor to Venice, uh, what, what's, how do you appreciate the wonder and, and the, the magic of, of La Serenissima, the, the serene city? Well, I'm like you, Rick. I like it early in the morning, for sure, uh, the peacefulness and... It's when all the local people are out, kids are going to school, people are going to work. I mean, I can get up at 5.30 in the morning and open my studio window and start to see people going into work, and I think that's a, an interesting thing to enjoy. But when people come to visit, I, I encourage everyone to get lost, to not hold on to their map, to know the Sestiere before they walk out the door, have some kind of general plan. Okay, today I'm headed towards uh, the academia, like Fred had suggested. And as I get there, I will pass through other neighborhoods. What will I be looking for? Maybe an ombra, the habit of the local gentleman to have the giro dell'ombra every day, to go have a glass of wine in the shade of the bell tower, <laughs> has leaked out into the other sestiere, and it's still a, a habit of the local people. And I enjoy taking foreign visitors to participate in the giro dell'ombra, meet a few local characters. You know, I'm so thankful that the traditions of Venice survive and that, that somebody like you, Stacy, who can appreciate Venice can actually move in and, and embrace those traditions as a local, as you've become over yeah. 20 years. Hey, Fred Plotkin and Stacy Gaboni, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion about Venice and, uh, and the high water. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
We include links to our guests with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. And you can always reach us by email. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. The sounds you hear on the Kokoda Trail are a world apart from the serenissima of the canals of Venice. Up next, travel writer Rick Antonson tells us about his grueling hike from one end of Papua New Guinea to the other. It goes through some of the most unforgiving terrain on Earth. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Antonson has explored some of the world's most inaccessible places, from Mount Ararat to Timbuktu. But he says the most grueling adventure he's ever experienced was crossing the Kokoda Trail in Papua New Guinea. The single-track trail was built as an overland mail route. It goes from the scrappy colonial capital of Port Moresby over a 6,000-foot mountain ridge to the northern coast of the island. For Antonson, the trail presented him with more than the physical challenges of wild terrain and weather extremes. It introduced him to the modern realities of a tribal world that's older than civilization. Rick Antonson, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. So, Papua New Guinea, it's just sort of fabled as one of the last wild places on Earth. Before we get into the experience you had, Rick, what's unique about Papua New Guinea? It's part of a large island, New Guinea, second largest island in the world after Greenland. And people are fascinated by the name. Often people think Papua New Guinea is the entire island. In fact, it is the eastern half. The western half is part of Indonesia. You know, it's, it's, it's always amazing when you think of the complexity of things down there and the thought that Indonesia is an um, archipelago of islands as big as the continental United States with it's as many the same people width. in it. Yeah, yes. the same width yes. with as many people. And uh, fascinating in that that one giant island would be split. When we think of Papua New Guinea, it's almost for archaeologists like a treasure chest to study, you know, tribal societies and, and this sort of thing. Well, and it was 50,000 years ago when the, the first people were arriving there, about the same time as early settlement within Australia. They arrived and they habitated pockets. Some were inland in a valley, and next to them was another valley of people that they never saw. They didn't have a need for trade, and they weren't going to war, so they didn't know one another. They didn't share languages they would be more diverse per square mile because of the rugged terrain than somebody who lives in Nebraska where there's really no mountains separating people. Absolutely, or even in the Canadian Rockies or the, the, the Swiss Alps, anywhere else, these pockets in, in Papua New Guinea were isolated and had no motivation to become not isolated. They, or they, connected they, with each other, yeah. yeah. And there was no need for one nation until okay. colonies were established and then... People had all the angst around that, and there began to be mobility. So, Rick, what made you want to go to this remote corner? Quite happenstance. Uh, my wife was um, in airport management with the, the Cairns Airport in Australia, and we moved into a, a new place. The neighbors came over. The night wore on, and his name is Glenn. His friends call him Monkeys, a, a thorough part of my book, Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. And Monk said to me late at night, I'm going to do the Kokoda. Do you want to come? And I said, absolutely. There might have been a little bit of liquid courage involved uh, with yeah. that. And then he smiled and I said, just one thing, what's the Kokoda? Uh, and he said to me, playing to the look of naivete on my face, he said, it's a walk across the country. And I said, what country? And he said, Papua New Guinea. And that began it. The challenge was on. We shook hands and... 
And you're, we went. you're a Canadian. I'm Canadian. And he was an Aussie. He's an Aussie through and And this is one thing we do have to remember. For me, as an American, Papua New Guinea just seems like literally the opposite end of, of civilization. But for the Australians, it's kind of like going to um, the Yucatan for an American or something. It like is, but there's not a, a comfort with too much travel there. Right. Now, describe the trail. This You must have learned about the trail. Uh, you hiked it. What, what is it? How long is it? Just physically, what, what is the trail? It is grueling. It's about 60 miles long. You're up, up, down, down, up and down, up and down, up and down. It is continuous. There are lots of false summits where you think, oh, there's the village. It can't be very far away. And then you spend the next two hours going up and down these, I'm at the top. Oh, no, there's another top higher up. So it is at times a real creator of angst for a hiker. It is utterly demanding. They ask you to show medical coverage that will get you helicoptered out of there through insurance if there's anything that happens. Uh, One recent year, four people died on the trek, Uh two of them in the same week, all heart-related. So is it an organized hike? Is this kind of like a guided tour, or is just it's every person for themselves? You have to go with an organized group. You do? You are not allowed to go there on your own because many of the lands are tribal. The villages where they let you stay do expect some form of compensation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're assisting you. They may even help with a bit of food. But you have to be prepared. You also need to have the safety of of a group. So you don't just go on your own. I was there 20 years ago with my church making a video about work that churches are doing in places like Papua New Guinea. And I was really impressed with how important the big man is in each village. You have to meet with the big man and you have to recognize he's the big man. And if you were on your own, you wouldn't know who these people are necessarily. Did you encounter that, the the leader? We would encounter someone who would come to greet us upon arrival. Uh And our guides, usually, we had two guides, they usually would be the ones that would joust if there was any... So you were lucky to have your guides with you. Absolutely mandatory, in in my view, for Because, I mean, conceivably, conceivably you, you could have thought, oh, this is a hindrance for our freedom. But I would imagine doing this particular hike... You're glad you had, given the complexities of tribal issues and so on, you you were probably lucky to have local fixers. You are right. And then the other thing about that is that sometimes you arrive and you think, well, we could make camp here. And somebody says, no, you can't. You have to move on. Well, you're moving on. It's getting dark. You want to find a new place. So you need to be aligned with the locals. Rick Antonson's telling us about his grueling trek across the Kokoda Trail in Papua New Guinea right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He writes about his adventure and what it showed him in his book, Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. Rick also writes about his trek up Mount Ararat in Full Moon over Noah's Ark, about his exploits on the back roads of the desert southwest in Route 66 Still Kicks, and about his African travels in a book called To Timbuktu for a Haircut. His website is rickantonson.com. The only souvenir I brought back from Papua New Guinea was three spears, and I brought them from this... uh, crazy guy, and and he didn't speak much English, but he pointed to each spear and he said, fish, chicken, human. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's a land that still has the legacy of cannibalism or head hunting that very much comes to the surface. One of the challenges for me writing Walking with Ghosts was not to sensationalize that, but to acknowledge it and how important it was to them as a, a tradition and as a practice and something that had lots of honor and integrity around it. Honor and integrity? Around the headhunting, it was very much a ritual that wasn't just about capturing an enemy. It was about taking the soul of the enemy. The, the whole cannibalism was absorbing oh. the good parts of the, okay. of the enemy. This is a way of triumphing, a way of growing. This is a way of 
self-enhancement. It's a way of being able to boast to your family or others within your village or competitive villages to be able to have a, a skull or, or the membranes. But part of it was the head hunting, the trophy, as it were. Also, the cannibalism, the actually consumption of it was to give your body and your spirit additional strengths that you wouldn't have if you hadn't done that. But on your trek, they brought meat from the grocery stores. Yes, we carried with us actually a lot of freeze-dried food just because of the way we had porters, which is something else that you need to arrange. But I want to say something else about the villages that I, I think you would have encountered, and that's very much the amazing singing voices of the children. Huh. I was so impressed, and we had this on several occasions. Papans are a wonderful people, but the children, say under the age of 12 or 15, when they sing, and they did often in a village to entertain us or inform us, they have some of the most remarkable young voices in the world. And in particular, when they sing their national anthem, which isn't an anthem you hear on sports podiums, but it is a remarkable song. One of the most beautiful sort of celebratory yeah. national hymns. Oh, yeah. I remember that now that you mentioned that. It's just there was um, a sort of a jauntiness. It was just really light and fun. I like that word, Jaunty. jauntiness. That's yeah. exactly what it was. And something related to that I learned, which gave me a, a real respect for how important it is to go to these places. In the Papua New Guinean language, at least where I was, there was no word for orphan because oh. there would never be a child abandoned. The community always took care of the children. I did not know of that concept, mm -hmm. but the closeness of a community, yeah. it's like everywhere else in the world. We all kind of want the same things. I'll never forget Rick standing in a village talking with some of the parents and a kid ran by and they could look at the footprint of that child, the barefoot footprint in the sand and know what child that was. Remarkable. And that was a good example to me of how tight they, they knew every child's footprint in that beautiful village where they had no word for orphan. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Antonsen. And uh, Rick's telling us about one of the most arduous journeys of his life, hiking along the Kokoda Trail in Papua New Guinea. His book is called Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. You call this the most grueling adventure. 60 miles, you know, that's, that's a long hike, but uh, it's certainly not a, one of the longer hikes around. But in the dense jungle, was the temperatures crazy? Were you afraid about your health? Uh, were there, you know, animals swinging from trees? What was it that made it grueling? Well, first of all, you maybe advance at about a mile an hour. So if you're out for six or seven hiking hours in a day, you haven't really made much progress on a 60-mile trek. So you're going to be making the commitment of being seven to, to ten days on the journey. That's if the weather is good. The jungle at times is oppressive, and all you can see is 37 shades of green. Yes. And they're fascinating. And if you stop and listen, you can hear all sorts of noises that are observing you. And you don't know whether they're predators or birds, but the sounds are fantastic. Particularly at night when it's as black as black can be, you're asleep and you wake up and you think, what are those noises? How vulnerable am I? And you're happy to be surrounded by some mates. You're probably fully aware that you are such a rookie when it comes to jungle life skills. Isn't that true? And these other guys, that's just, I'm thirsty, I'm going to climb this tree for a coconut. And they make it work. The other thing was that the Papawans were, to a person, our porters, the helpers, anyone with the cooking, 
they were absolutely wonderful as hosts and in effect saying, this is my country, I will share with you whatever you would like to see or learn about it. They would talk, they would tell stories, and we could hear their music late at night or first thing in the morning before we were even awake. Oh, yeah. That's great. So something I should say about the Kokoda Trail is that its prominence has come because during the Second World War, it was the site of fierce fighting between the Australians and the Japanese. And it was a different time than the world we live in today. Societies are different today than they were then. But for six months, this was, in the terms of General MacArthur, the worst fighting conditions anywhere in World War II. Coincident with this were the Americans at Guadalcanal. So that's Mm. the timing in 1942. And we had pretty good weather on the Kokoda. But in 1942... The September was the wettest September on record. I talked with other trekkers who have been on there before, like our guides, and they were there when it was rainy. And you would take 10 or 12 days to do what we did in five or six. Right. Just because you're You're slugging through the mud. Yeah, you wrote quite movingly about the Australian military campaigns and how heartbreaking they must have been. I will tell you, twice on the trip, I cried when we were in a a little bit of a memorial. We had stopped to talk about Butcher Hill or or Brigade Hill or other places where the battles had been fierce for both sides. But to think of the young lives that were were lost and all of the brutality or to... I woke up one night and it was foggy. The, the, The rain had come in and it was dead quiet. It must have been two, three in the morning. And I was had this fear of what it would have been like to be thinking that somebody yeah. was maybe 12 feet away and wanted to take your life. So emotionally, it was draining. I would say that most places around the world, if you go to an old battle site, say in Europe, it's been modernized or fixed up the access right, routes. Right. This looks like it did in 1942 with the jungle overgrown to where it wants to. The jungle has its way with the path. So you are walking through history but it's as it looked in 1942. You wrote about gold prospectors and uh, British colonial forces and atrocities. Was there an awareness that, you know, white imperialists had really had a brutal hand here on this island? On the island of New Guinea, you know, the the, the Spanish, the the British, the Germans, there were colonial powers, the, the Dutch and Indonesia next door. So a lot of that played out with sort of the territorial bits. And then World War I changed that a bit. World War II changed it more dramatically. And then in the early 70s, Papua New Guinea became its own independent country with its own flag and its own national anthem and its own pride. Mm-hmm. This sometimes gets tarnished today by the, the image of the rascals, the sort of ne'er-do-wells. Who so I had this issue that. with the, the rascals also. Did you? And when you're on a bus going across Papua New Guinea, you got these two-bit bandits out there and they're not going to kill you. They're just going to take everybody off of the bus, take all their clothes and all their jewelry and all their cameras and just leave them naked there. And then they're going to just laugh into the next valley. Uh, What was the rascal situation for you? So we encountered it not on the trail, but when we got to one of the maybe second or third largest community around there, which is Papadetta. And they were very much around the, the compound that we went into the grocery store. When we drove in in our motor vehicle, and then the gates were closed behind us. We did our shopping, but so you could see So protective compound. Protective armed guards. Because they're these, quote, rascals out there, and they call them rascals because they're, they're not murderous thugs. They're just 
pesty thieves? Is that the deal? Or how would you characterize Well, them? The, they are both of the above. So they do so murder people. They do. So yeah. the rascals, R-A-S-K-O-L-S. Right. The rascals have morphed from being tribal feuds to coming into the major centers, not always having jobs. There becomes the drug trade. Right. You have a lot of initiation that sometimes for youngsters is not just robbing, but it's assault and it's it's very hurtful things. Right. There also are feuds that remain unresolved from over the years. And so there have been stories of, of trekkers being accosted. Usually it is the guides they are with that bear the brunt of being accosted by another tribe. And there are a lot of tribes. We've got an email here from Richard in Margaret River in Australia. And Richard writes, I taught in the capital city, Port Moresby, at the University of Papua New Guinea for several years and was very impressed at the language skills of the citizens there. There are over 800 languages in Papua New Guinea, and most residents understand about three or four of them and actually use several languages. Were you aware of the amount of languages that the society has to deal with there? I became aware of that more through research than encountering it because while we would hear songs in different languages being sung by the porters and some of them spoke different languages, mm -hmm. they would have Takfisin or they would have a pidgin version. Mm -hmm. But Papua New Guinea has 832 different languages. There are 6,800 living languages in the world. So it means that a small country, small population... 20% of all the languages in the world are on that half an island. Exactly, <laughs> which has 0.1% of the wow. world's population. Yeah. The only other country with 800 living languages is India, and they're 12% oh, yeah. of the world population. Right. So when you juxtapose that, it goes back to the, the early settlements were all in pocket valleys, spread out along the, the ocean shore, up rivers... And they survived on their own, and their languages were totally independent structures. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Antonsen. His book is Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. If you just think while you were there, was there a moment when you thought, this is just an exposure to a different world, and you're so thankful that you were there to benefit from that? I would think the middle of the night experiences when you just wake up. One night I got up, I walked to the the bush and was coming back and the stars. Yeah. I mean, there are only, I don't know what, 9,000 stars we actually can see with the naked eye. And you could see more in the Southern Hemisphere than in the Northern Hemisphere because of the tilt. But whatever number I looked at, they were masquerading as a billion. And I felt the intimidation of the night sky and being in a country where at that moment I thought I was possibly the only person awake. So that was humbling and inspiring at the same time. I bet you're glad you took your friend's offer up to go to Papua New Guinea and hike the Kokoda Trail. Well, you know, I would turn to Monk every once in a while, particularly if we'd gone up something like the wall, which is <laughs> nearly vertical and your heart's just thumping and I'd look at him, I'd say, some walk across the country, Monk. <laughs> but you're glad you did it. I am. All right. Rick Antonson, fascinating. Uh, the book Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnikon. We get promotional support from Sheila Gruzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe. 
one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.